Hello, everyone. We're glad you found us, and welcome to our podcast at antiqueauctionforum.com. We hope you find this show entertaining and informative. This is Martin with the Antique Auction Forum, and I have Susan Doherty. How are you doing, Susan? Fine, thanks. And Janine Scary is joining us. She's here in town for our monthly decorative arts lecture at the De Young Museum. How are you doing, Janine? Very good, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Janine comes to us from Colonial Williamsburg, where she was curator of uh, Blackson Ceramics for 16 and a half years and is now curator of metals. And she has kindly agreed to create a lecture for us on Matthew Bolton. So why don't we start out um, and talk a little bit about the life of uh, Matthew Bolton. He was young and born into a... Uh, uh, Matthew Bolton was bur- born in Birmingham, England, um, his primary residence throughout his lifetime. He was the son of a toy maker, which does not mean someone who manufactured ch- children's playthings but rather refers to the production of the small uh, range of decorative goods that were the stuff of everyday life. Things like buttons and shoe buckles, cane heads and sword hilts, snuff boxes, all of the little notions that um, helped to set people aside in terms of their status and also to uh, serve as signals of their sense of style and taste. So Matthew's father was a toy maker and a successful one, but there was a lot of competition. It's a major industry in Birmingham. And Bolton, although he had the benefit of some uh, school education, he entered his father's business at a very young age. And when his father died, took over the shop. He was already 21 by that point. Took Hmm. over the business and then expanded it exponentially. Mm -hmm. Now, he, he at 21 years old, now didn't he... Didn't he start enameling at a very... He he invented some type of process of enameling. He did do some work with enamel production. Um, One of the the tricks, of course, of marketing then as now is to give the objects of everyday life as much cachet as you can. And so uh, Bolton had worked on perfecting some enameling techniques for buttons that were then frequently being exported to France and re-imported into England as in the latest French style. So I'm not sure he got the credit in his lifetime for uh-huh. that work, but um, he was very instrumental and showed great promise early in his life um, in furthering his father's field and expanding the family business considerably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, just just one thing. Uh, when you talk about toys, the, the toys are not children's toys, as we're... No. So the term in the 18th century and earlier meant other... Yes, and... Like, and much in the sense that we sometimes today will say, please don't toy with me, don't trifle with me. Toys were trifles. They were little accessory items of all sorts. Children's playthings, on the other hand, were an entirely different category of production. Um, so when we talk about him being a toy maker, it meant that he manufactured the stuff of everyday um, existence, the buttons and the buckles and so on. How about that? Yeah. Wow. One of the things Janine and I were talking about was um, Matthew uh, Bolton's relationship with Wedgwood. Um, They were both members of the Lunar Society, Um, Mr. Bolton, uh, one of the founding members. 
Um, and Wedgwood we think of as uh, many things, but among them, um, the father of modern marketing or branding. And he's, Wedgwood is famous for this beautiful showroom um, where he marketed his goods. Um, one of the reasons that Bolton's businesses were so um, large and the production was so large was that he was a partner with John Fothergill, who was quite a merchant and had connections throughout the continent as far as far flung as Russia and then also connections with the United States. Can you tell us a little bit about the way Matthew Bolton marketed his goods? Well, Bolton was keenly aware of the value of social connection as well as high standards of production. He wanted to make the best products available and often perhaps overspent in the pursuit of perfection. Um, but he also knew that getting his name associated with the goods and getting those goods raised to that higher level of perfection under his name was very, very important. Hmm. And so Bolton was one of the first Sheffield manufacturers um, or manufacturers of Sheffield Plate to use a maker's mark um, when that was legally permitted in 1773. He also lobbied very aggressively for the um, establishment of an assay office in Birmingham for the marking of sterling silver, which would allow him to expand his clientele in another direction. And he undertook the production of things like ormolu in order to guarantee that a, a gilded bronze or copper alloy that um, was previously associated largely with French production, but Matthew Bolton decided that he could beat them at their own game and make wares of equal and indeed even superior um, perfection, which he associated again with himself through things like having specialized auctions at Christie's in London, um, not what we think of today as you know the sort of fire scale sale, but instead an auction where it was an opportunity for the public at large to compete, to own examples of Bolton and Fothergill. So they had uh, they they had a, a, a range of tools that they used for getting their name before the public. Um, John Fothergill grew up um, in the mercantile trade, and his family was originally from Koningsberg. So he had great connections, um, not only in England, but also on the continent and in the Baltic region. And he had worked for another uh, toy-making trade in Birmingham prior to becoming associated with Bolton. Uh, what he brought into this partnership that lasted 20 years was uh, a considerable amount of capital, always a welcome um, <laughs> resource for a man who's eager to expand in many directions. And he also bought a great knowledge of the mercantile trade. And from the work that has been done by many scholars now looking at the archives and shop records, it's clear that there was this sort of tension between these two partners. Um, Bolton was the man of vision. He wanted to do new things. He wanted to achieve the highest levels of production, introduce new products, get their name out there at all costs. Whereas Father Gill was very frequently in the position of putting the brakes on and saying, this doesn't fit with our business plan. This is an over-expenditure of funds. We are putting too much into this. We need to cut back. So they, they had this sort of push-me-pull-you relationship that um, lasted throughout uh, Father Gill's adult lifetime. And although Bolton certainly carried on after Father Gill's death and, and produced many great objects um, in a variety of business ventures, I think that they served each other very well during that early period of time, and, and Fothergill certainly also had the business connections 
in the Baltic region, on the continent, and in America to market these goods very successfully. You know, when I think of um, when I think of old Sheffield plate, isn't it finely rolled silver? Or didn't he have a plating? He had something to do with the plating, the plating process. Well, um, Sheffield plate, as we call it today, um, was not invented by Matthew Bolton. It was actually invented by a man named Thomas Bolsover, who was a cutler in Sheffield, in the Sheffield area. And Bolsover had um, brought to perfection in about 1742 the process of manufacturing what was essentially a copper. Uh, that was clad or or had a skin of silver on top of it. Yeah. Copper and silver are very chemically related, and Bolsover discovered that you could essentially fuse the metals, a thick sheet of copper, a very thin sheet of silver, fuse them together, and then run them through rolling mills in order to flatten or extrude them, um, and that they would both move at the same degree so that you could endlessly stretch them and proportionally, you'd still have the same relative thickness of copper to silver. Now, you could have single-clad um, uh, Sheffield, which would have one layer of silver on one side and the copper on the interior, or you could have double-plated, which would be a sandwich with silver bread, for want of a better explanation, and a nice, thick copper filling. Um, so what you did was to make your metal first, and then from that metal, you would form your objects. And you could form them through tradi traditional raising techniques, as were used in silversmithing, or you could form them with newer types of technology that utilized stamping and drop presses, um, which is really where Bolton um, focused on that aspect of the business. Um, Sheffield is frequently associated, of course, with the city of Sheffield, thanks to Bolsover, but Bolton became a major producer of Sheffield-plated wares in Birmingham, and he took it to a level of industrialization that I think really created a new standard for the production of Sheffield-plated wares. Of course, one of the big problems in um, using 18th century documents, whether they are um, British documents or American documents, is sorting out the language. And it can get tremendously confusing mm. because in the 18th century, the term for sterling or solid silver is plate. Right. Mm -hmm. I, would get, I would avail myself of a handsome cupboard of plate. Mm -hmm. That does not mean plated. Mm -hmm. And um, so the terms plate and plated have to be um, assessed very carefully when reading those documents. <laughs> um, we know that Sheffield plated wares, undoubtedly from Bolton as well as other manufacturers, were very popular in America even prior to the Revolution. But um, there are very few specific manufacturers' names associated with the advertisement or sale of the vast majority of those goods. So again, it becomes very tricky to sort out um, the extent to which Bolton, as an individual, was known for his work in this area in the pre-revolutionary period, but certainly in England, in both pre- and post-revolutionary, he was determined once again to create a very high standard that would give him a marketing edge within the larger field. Now, why did he decide to open an essay office? Ah, well, he aspired to serve the gentry as well as the middling classes, and certainly the gentry had more disposable income for the sale, of, for the purchase of, of sterling silver. Um, although Bolton petitioned Parliament 
um, for the establishment of an assay office, claiming that he wanted to serve the middle class. In fact, um, most of the opportunities that were presented for manufacturing the less expensive goods, like spoons and forks and knives, he turned up in favor of the more prestigious and expensive uh, bespoke goods for the aristocracy. But there wasn't a prohibition prior to the establishment in 1773 of the assay office in Birmingham. There wasn't a, pro uh, a prohibition against craftsmen in that area making sterling silver. The problem was that they had to send it somewhere else to have it assayed. Mm. And assaying, of course, is the process of testing or analyzing the metal to determine that it is of sterling standard. That is 925 parts silver to 75 parts copper. England had mandated that standard as early as 1300. And it was the earliest form of consumer protectionism. Mm -hmm. um, it guaranteed that you got what you were paying for because goodness knows you could adulterate the mixture considerably and it would still look very much like it was of a sterling standard. So the assay office um, tested the metal and um, added additional marks in addition to the maker's mark or the sponsor's mark um, that guaranteed it was of sterling purity and that it had been assayed at a given office um, established under government contract on a certain date. Now, Bolton and his partner, Fothergill, produced sterling goods far in advance of the 1773 Birmingham office, but they had to send them almost 70 miles to Chester, which was the closest assay office available to them. Mm. And there are a few examples that still survive with the Chester assay mark along with Bolton and Fothergill's registered touch marks. The problem is that it added considerably to the expense, to the time, and it also often resulted in damage. Um, the, uh, in the absence of modern roadways, um, the transportation of goods was difficult at best, and packing standards were um, abysmal. <laughs> And as a result, things would be sent off very frequently to be assayed. They would come back, and they would be damaged and had to be refashioned and reassayed. Wow. That was a major uh, thorn in his side, and he was determined to enhance the, the standards of, of production and to facilitate his own ambitions by having a local assay office established. Needless to say, the London silversmiths especially were not too keen about that, but he mm. succeeded in getting Parliament to pass that act in 1773. And actually, um, on August 31st, when the Birmingham office opened, Bolton and Fothergill were the first ones in line to submit their wares for um, assay and testing, and they presented, I believe, over 100 objects, which in total weighed... Oh, I believe it was over 8,000 troy ounces. And just as a point of reference, oh, a 1960s Gorham Chantilly teaspoon weighs approximately one ounce. So we're talking about the equivalent of 8,000 teaspoons worth of metal. <laughs> wow. That was on day one. Oh, wow. Can you talk about um, Bolton's partnership um, with James Watt in, in the uh, steam engine? Patent. Well, James Watt was another great inventor of the 18th century. He was a Scotsman who um, did not invent the steam engine, but rather perfected it. Uh, steam engines were first produced uh, following the plans of um, Newcomen. Uh, they were in production by uh, 1710. And apparently, as a fairly young man, James Watt was given a Newcomen steam engine to try to repair 
And in the process of working on this, he came to the conclusion that he could make a number of improvements to it. And so he began a process of upgrading and refining the engine, um, which was basically a pump engine, and producing something that operated more efficiently. And of course, more efficiency equals greater return on profits. Um, Bolton and Watt began to um, correspond with each other in the 1760s. They didn't actually meet until 1768, and at that point in time, um, Bolton became convinced that you know, this was an area of industry that he could turn a handsome profit from. And he at one point boasted to, um, to James Watt, he said, you know, it may not be worth my while to make your steam engines for three countries, but it would be very much worth my while to make your steam engines for the world. Mm. And he began to lobby and negotiate for um, an opportunity, and that happened in 1772 when um, John Roebuck, who had been underwriting a lot of Watts's experiments, um, ran into financial difficulties, and Bolton had the opportunity to purchase two-thirds interest in Watts' invention, which wow. was by that point under patent. Um, he was able to purchase the two-thirds interest by basically buying out Roebuck. Now, one of his big concerns was that the patent was set to expire fairly soon, and so he promptly turned once again to his negotiating powers with Parliament and was able to have the patent extended to 1800. And that gave him the great technical advantage um, and thus began a partnership that lasted to the end of his lifetime and indeed into um, his sons uh, carrying on with the firm um, that increasingly developed more efficient and effective means of steam power. At one point it was estimated that a Nukeman engine um, was surpassed by a Watt and Bolton steam engine in that it could produce um, the same amount of goods with twice the efficiency and one-third the amount of coal that was required to fire the Newcomen engine. And actually that led to some interesting and sometimes problematical negotiations because they sold their steam engines in a rather unusual way um, they subcontracted component parts to other manufacturers. They did the designs and were um, oftentimes involved with installation. But ultimately, the price they charged was based on a yearly calculation of the profit savings by using less coal than compared yeah. with a Newcomen engine. So it, wow. it created a actually a, a rather fair means of uh, price establishment, but on the other hand, one that was always subject to great controversy as to, you know, was it indeed matching the amount of efficiency and what was the current price of coal? So that creates its own little conundrum. But they were tremendously successful in that endeavor. And did the steam engine get to the world? Oh, goodness, yes. Well, the Newcomen steam engine had certainly gotten to the world and was being utilized in many ways. Um, Watt brought his engine to a new level of perfection thanks to the involvement, his vision, and the involvement of Bolton and the resources. Um, they marketed them all over the world. I think there were at least 1,750 wow. uh, Bolton and Watt steam engines that were produced during their partnership together. But at the same time, the information, of course, was spreading 
Um, so that here in America, you had, for instance, Fulton involved in producing steam engines. And he had his boilers made by Paul Revere. Um, so, you know, there, there is this sort of uh, very uh, exciting period when men of industry and ingenuity are working on similar projects, even on opposite sides of the Atlantic and achieving remarkable results. Now, I know he had something to do with the mint. Is that right? Ah, yes. Well, um, he took the application of steam power from its primary use, which was in mining to um, basically drain excess water from mines so that more coal and more co um, copper could be um, excavated than previously possible. But he also adapted steam power to drop presses and stamping and factory production of industrial goods, um, or rather, I should say, um, domestic goods that rapidly, rapidly became industrial by virtue of his new technologies in making them. Well, if you could do that, why not enhance the production of coinage? Um, the counterfeiting of coinage had been uh, a problem since the first coins were made. There was a chronic shortage really? of specie. Oh, yes, indeed. That's something you just wouldn't think of back then. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> uh, counterfeiting was rampant then as now. And uh -huh. um, there was always a shortage of specie, of hard money. It's staggering, I think, for most of us today to try to imagine the extent to which um, the economy of a nation such as Britain depended on barter and bills of credit. Um, so one of the particular concerns for, for Bolton was that there was a, an especially um, s difficult shortage of small coinage. Gold and silver coins um, were somewhat more readily available, but they were beyond the means of the common man. And so it was, unfortunately, the workmen who were often getting the short end of the stick um, by being given um, copper coins that were counterfeited, ironically enough, very frequently in the back rooms of many Birmingham shops. Hmm. And so Bolton determined that you know they needed to establish a, a copper currency in Britain that was recognized by the crown and was very strictly controlled. And so through the use of steam power, he was able to create uh, flat copper sheets of uniform thickness, very important, um, drop stamping um, the discs to a uniform size using um, a collar um, or a, a basically a circular um, constraint in order to keep them of the standard size, and that was something that was not previously done. Um, and these blanks or planchettes were then um, actually drop stamped to create the images using steam power as opposed to hammering them into dies. And the result was a coin of extraordinary uniformity. Um, you know, even today we're used to the idea of the British pound sterling. And we tend to think of, you know, sterling as the metal of which flatware is made and tea services and so on. But they call it the pound sterling because Britain operated on a sterling standard. Their money was directly tied to the value of the metal. And so if you made coins that were misshapen or underweight or had a little bit missing from the edge, you were literally cheating people. Hmm. And Bolton introduced not only um, the first uh, wide-scale production of a milled edge, that little um, series of, of lines along oh, the yeah. edge of our quarters today mm -hmm. are milling, mm -hmm. and that's to prevent clipping 
or snipping off little bits of the edge of the coin really? that you could wow. save and um, eventually turn in a scrap metal for the value of that metal. <laughs> a little off That's of a each coin. A little off of each coin will make a man rich over time. Penny pincher. A penny pincher, <laughs> exactly. And so by, by um, creating a milled border or what's sometimes referred to as a cartwheel border, another type of coin he produced, it made it very easy to recognize if coins had been mutilated in any way. Hmm. Um, so he, he produced the first British um, penny and tuppence coins uh, and actually did this with the permission of the crown, but they weren't produced by the Royal Mint until the 19th century. So he really hmm. gave the working man the opportunity to be paid in cold, hard cash. Hmm. Can you tell us about um, Mr. Bolton's partnership with Ami Argand and the, its role in changing lighting as we know it? Oh, like an Argand lamp. Lamps. Yes. Wow. yes. Well, Bolton was fascinated by um, the idea of creating cleaner, more useful sources of light that would burn brighter with less smoke and soot and smell. And Ami Argand had invented a wonderful type of lamp to achieve this goal. Um, and Bolton was one of the first widespread manufacturers of these lamps and indeed sold them as far as the United States. Um, George Washington had them. Um, they became very popular, especially among literary men who wanted to have the luxury, the privilege of reading by a lamplight at night. Um, and they were a vast improvement over candles. Um, they were rapidly supplanted by other types of lighting devices, but really they were the first major step forward in producing a brilliant light. In fact, ironically enough, a light that was considered so bright that it just might be injurious to your eyes. Yeah. Um, but again, precision uh, production of parts where the components would fit together very precisely was key to making successful argon lamps. And so in that particular sense... Um, Bolton was, again, very instrumental in the mass production of these goods. Now, we talk about Bolton being the visionary mm -hmm. and the tension between him and Mr. Father, Father Gill, who was uh, more practical. One thing that strikes me about Mr. Bolton is when he builds his three-story factory in the Soho complex, rather than just hiring an engineer, as most people did for a manufacturing facility, he hires an architect. And his manufactory has a beautiful Palladian facade. Can you talk about that? And was he also involved in the design of the products that he produced? Ah, well, um, as with his sense that personal branding was important, getting his name out there um, was important, he also, I think, embraced and celebrated the idea of um, machine production in a way that many of us might not understand today. Um, we prize, you know, the hand of the craftsman. Um, but in an age when most things were handcrafted, he prized, as did many of his peers, the perfection offered by industry and technology. And so his uh, purpose-built factory, um, designed by um, James Wyatt, was a monument in many respects to that um, standard of excellence. It was built on a, um, a very classical plan on the facade. It had three stories and was designed in such a way that the different processes could be um, relegated to specific areas so that 
the ultimate goal of industrialization, of course, is uh, the mass production of goods, which are so finely made that they will fit together seamlessly. And this allowed him to streamline production in a way that had not been achieved on a widespread scale previously. So he's tremendously proud of it. And in fact, the factory became a major tourist site for British and foreign nobility. Um, and he often wrote with great delight about the number of people who came and who they were, the Countess of this, the Duke of that, um, the three favorites of the Empress of Russia, and how he would tour them through the factory, entertain them in his home, and thus basically allow them back out into the world to carry the word forward of the great achievements going on at Soho in Birmingham. Um, as far as the design of his objects, I think, again, he had the good business sense to recognize that there were designers who were incredibly talented who could be put to use for creating the overall schemes for his uh, candlesticks and cassoulets and um, buttons and buckles and sword hilts. And so he has, there are numerous design books that survive today, many of them in the archives in Birmingham, which are a tremendous resource. Um, but some of which also appear on the marketplace every now and then or are already in sconced in other library collections. And while they're not always um, as well signed and dated and documented as we might like, the hand of uh, various artists such as um, uh, James Wyatt can be seen in the pages of many of those books. So he was, he was not the sort of um, prima donna who demanded that it all be his work and his alone. It had to be the work of the best people under his direction and name. Hmm. Now, what was the tie again with Josiah Wedgwood? Ah, well, Wedgwood, many. <laughs> very many, many. They were like-minded individuals. Mm -hmm. um, Wedgwood, of course, was doing much the same type of work um, at his Utoria factory up in Staffordshire. And um, they both became members of the Lunar Society, uh, essentially a, a, a sort of... Astronomy? No, no, no. Um, they were called the Lunar Society because they met each month at the time of the full moon. Oh. And that would allow the lunatics, as they sometimes <laughs> called themselves, to travel homewards, if needs be, under the light of the full moon oh. very safely. Smart. Um, but essentially a, a, a very... Uh, very forward-thinking individuals. They, they essentially were a group of like-minded men who styled themselves philosophers because at that point the word philosopher meant one who was a student of science, and they would get together to share ideas and exchange thoughts on astronomy and engineering and uh, metallurgy and experimentations with certainly what we would today call chemistry um, and, and to share this sort of knowledge among each other and further their knowledge. They were fascinated by electricity. Um, and among the leading members, certainly Bolton played a pivotal role, but Josiah Wedgwood also was a frequent attendee at these meetings and a member of the group as was Erasmus Darwin, um, Charles Darwin's grandfather, hmm. and uh, Joseph Priestley, the radical dissenter and Unitarian minister who is um, well-known today as the discoverer of what he termed delogisticated um, matter or delogisticated air. Today, we call it oxygen. 
Um, and he, uh, he, they were also joined by William Small, interestingly enough, who was a Scotsman who had been a professor of philosophy and mathematics at the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia, for a number of years. Um, he was, in fact, one of the professors of Thomas Jefferson, and Jefferson claimed that he had set his feet upon the path that directed his future life. Um, but Dr. Small returned to Britain and became a very fast friend and indeed a major player in the um, Lunar Society. Now, as for Wedgwood and Bolton, um, they admired each other, they corresponded frequently, and they both had a healthy concern about possible espionage um, among their uh, good works, simply because... Um, Wedgwood always suspected that perhaps Bolton had ambitions to making ceramics, and indeed mm. he did. Um, and I think Bolton probably uh, viewed Wedgwood as a potential competitor should he start to get more directly involved in the toy trade with some of his more decorative ceramic wares, such as Jasper. Fortunately, they collaborated more than conspired against each other, and ultimately, yeah. Uh, well, they, they, you know, the, the very best of friends and the very best of um, know your enemies. Exactly, <laughs> know your enemies well. But I think they really were friends and spoke of each other, um, wrote of each other in, in affectionate terms, and yet at the same time had a slightly wary eye on the remarkable potential that um, they could offer each other both as allies and as competitors. Now, you mentioned Darwin earlier, and I know yeah. that Charles Darwin married a Wedgwood, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, actually, Charles Darwin was the grandson both of Josiah Wedgwood and Erasmus Darwin. Um, and Erasmus Darwin... He married his first cousin. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, they did that. They did that. Yeah. It's much more common. Mm -hmm. um, but um, Erasmus Darwin was a uh, physician... And um, he also had a tremendous in, in interest himself in evolution and the study of the animal mm. species. And in many respects, it was um, uh, a lot of his early work that um, was picked up and expanded on by his grandson. Hmm. I didn't know that. Wow. Very interesting. Boy, you're a multifaceted. You know? well, I told you. <laughs> yeah. I've, been, I've been reading a lot about... Um, Matthew Bolton and these other fascinating individuals lately, and truth to tell, it could be a lifetime career. Wow. Um, I think it's... I, I, if, if I were to play that game of who would you have to your dinner party, mm -hmm. um, if you could have only six people to have the ultimate dinner party with, who would they, they be? Well, I know for sure that three of those men would be very like-minded and very aware of each other, and they would be Matthew Bolton and Josiah Wedgwood. And their American counterpart in many respects, Paul Revere, um, they were all leaders of industry, and they all happily embraced the idea of um, a larger-scale industrialized production of objects for the betterment of all mankind and their personal pockets. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the invention of Sheffield Plate had huge implications for the manufacture of, of household silver. Um, one of the, the obvious things is candlesticks are almost all made of Sheffield plate rather than sterling. Can you talk about that and what other forms might have been affected? Certainly. Um, candlesticks are an essential form 
Um, brass candlesticks are, are present in, uh, and being produced in England and indeed even in America, but primarily England and the continent in vast quantities. And mm-hmm. if you wanted to take it up a notch and express a little more of your wealth, um, having silver or silver-looking candlesticks was very important. Now, the vast majority of candlesticks, um, whether they were brass or sterling, were made by the casting technique. And casting uses up much more metal than any other fabrication technique in the metals production area. Um, It results in good, sturdy, heavy candlesticks, but you're putting a tremendous amount of your financial resources into the material itself. Mm -hmm. The advantage to Sheffield is that, well, first, in order to produce Sheffield, you had to have a very sophisticated, um, highly mechanized shop producing the, the rolling mills for making the Sheffield metal itself, the plated silver, fused silver plate, um, were a tremendous investment. And if you had that kind of means and you had the available workforce and the motive power, uh, be it water or steam, um, you could certainly then take the next step and begin to invest in cut steel dies um, and in drop presses and stamping equipment, which would allow you to take either thin silver or the Sheffield plated metal and drop stamp it into the component parts of an item like a candlestick, which would then be soldered together, very often reinforced with an iron rod and filled with pitch to give it the structural strength and the weight that made it a very, very desirable and attractive form. Well, what's the advantage of doing this in Sheffield? It looks exactly like sterling, but it doesn't have the waste that is demanded by sterling when it's cast. And so candlesticks were the perfect solution to Sheffield production, and they become the major form in Sheffield silver. But they are not by only means the only form. In fact, um, the fashion for uh, sterling um, dinnerware, especially for things like dining plates, um, continued, but they were tremendously expensive. Now, increasingly you'll find that Sheffield was being used for items that didn't wear as readily. So, while you might have Sheffield dining plates and platters, um, or dishes as they would have called them in the 18th century, um, the problem there is with a close steel blade cutting your meat, you could cut through the silver, and it would show, the copper underneath would show. So they're made, but they're not a major product because they really have a a limited functional lifespan. Instead, what um, Bolton's records um, document quite readily is that um, for a very prestigious order for a member of the aristocracy, he could produce sterling dinner plates and um, sterling meat dishes, but he would make the dish domes, the covers, out of Sheffield because they weren't going to wear, they weren't going to be on the table as long, so even if they did start to wear, it wouldn't be as readily obvious. Your candlesticks, which of course the only wear there is from the actual cleaning of them and handling them, they would not wear. So you can begin to create services that incorporate some of each of these metals Um, that are all keyed to fit their specific function, thus creating the illusion of ever so much more silver without being able to readily discern which is solid silver or sterling and which is Sheffield or plated silver. 
Now, when did electroplating come along? Ah, electroplating is a 19th century invention. Mm -hmm. And um, the big difference there, um, aside from, of course, the, the, the use of the electric current itself, is that with electroplating, first you make the object. And initially they made them out of copper, the, the, the underlying form. Um, and then subsequently they began making them out of various nickel alloys or white metal alloys. Um, but once you've made the teapot, the candlestick, the cake basket, you then plate it. Yes. So with Sheffield, first you make the metal, then you make the object. With electroplating, ah. first you make the object, and then you make it look like silver. Wow. wow. Um, okay, I'm going to throw one question at you, kind of an odd question, and see if you can answer this. Who would you consider today a Matthew Bolson? Ah, well, I am very grateful to the Decorative Arts Society of Northern California for having already provided this answer because really? they actually, yes, um, in, in, <laughs> in writing up um, a little bit of a, a preview for this lecture to put on the website, um, uh, a very astute individual, and I'm sorry I can't give credit due. Gordon Fine, our hardworking and gifted president. Well, kudos to Gordon Fine because he compared um, Bolton to um, a Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg, individuals mm -hmm. who didn't invent the internet, um, but or didn't invent computers, but have taken um, the use of, of computers, the development of uh, both hardware and software to a whole new level, or have taken the social um, interactive aspects of the internet and brought it to a new level of awareness. And in the process, really changed the way we live. I think Bolton would have liked Zuckerberg the best because he was a social guy, right? Ah, uh, yeah. possibly, although it's hard to argue with Bill Gates' financial success. Yes, yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up. Thank you so, so much. It's a pleasure you. to be here. Yes. So this is Martin Willis with Susan Doherty and Janine Scarry, and we are signing off. site antiqueauctionforum.com please stop by the forum message board click on the community tab at the top of the menu bar and you can join in on a topic post your own website links and do a lot more thanks so much for listening and we hope you enjoyed today's show